Stand with me as we read Matthew 21, verses 12 to 14. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we ask for your guidance right now. We have to try to put ourselves in the mindset and the culture and the context of 2,000 years ago and we only have three verses to do that. But you don't leave us void. You, you leave us with a lot of a background and a lot of scripture references to help us wade through this stuff. I pray now that the things that were intended to be taught and the, and the message that you intended for the people back then would be made clear to Genesis House today. Obviously, uh, there's two responsibilities. There's mine to relay that truth and to, to preach your word accurately, but there's also the congregations to discern what I'm saying through your spirit. So we ask for unity as we strive to understand your word and what that means for us in this life now. We're excited to learn the things we have today, and um, but we want to just put these into practice too. We've learned that your word is not just informative, but performative. And so we ask that it performs its work in us this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So before we get started, let me remind you of last week's message. You'll remember that we began a new series on prayer and evangelism. And we answered the question, why pray? Why do evangelism? What's, what, why share our faith? What's, what's the point? And we learned two important lessons from that message. Number one, because God wants to partner with us. We walked through the Genesis account from Adam and Eve in the garden and the role they played in partnering with God and bringing creation to its full, fullest intentions. And then we saw how that moved into people like Abraham and establishing the nation of Israel. How um, that, you know, Israel um, partnered with, Moses partnered with the Lord in, in doing different things. And the disciples partnered and so on. And so we see this idea of partnership. So he's not some distant God. He's one, he's one that wants to be intimate with us and to work alongside with us. But two, we learned, we learned that God's word is performative, not just informative. Meaning that God's word is more than an encyclopedia of gaining facts. And those of us who are knowledge hungry and love knowledge, I love it. But if I just keep it as knowledge and it doesn't move into something else, it's dead. It doesn't mean anything. It has to be performative. It causes God's will to happen. It does things. And we learned it, you know, things like it convicts you of sin. And um, it can open up doors for supernatural conversation. And it can sustain, sustain, sustain someone who's struggling emotionally and so on and so forth. Now, if you missed that sermon, I'd encourage you to listen to it because it's the foundation to everything we're talking about for the next six weeks. That's the foundational stone for every sermon I'm doing from now to Christmas. So with that in mind, we're switching to a different topic, but within the same framework. We're answering the question then, if we're going to partner with God in these ways, what is a biblical house of prayer? What is that? What characteristics need to be present for us to partner with Him in the right ways. 
And this, of course, obviously reaches out beyond prayer, but into evangelism as well. And so I believe the answer to that is found in Matthew 21. Now, I will tell you this. I am super excited to preach this sermon today. <laughs> you know, like every, all of you have highlights in your life and you, you, things you're excited about. I, this passage, the things I learned this week and over the last month or so as I was researching this in the past, I have seen things in here I've never seen in my Christian, entire Christian life. And I am super pumped to show you the things that I've been learning so that hopefully you share the same excitement and you learn things and see a greater appreciation for what Jesus is actually saying here in these words. Again, but not just so that you gain information. I want this to excite you so that it becomes performative in your life. It changes you. It, make, it causes something to happen and gives you a greater desire to partner with the Lord. So with that, let's dive in. This event is often referred to as the Temple Cleansing. And I'm guessing all of you in your Bibles probably have some kind of uh, title saying that above it. In fact, I, if it doesn't say Temple Cleansing, I'd be very shocked. I'm, I'm, that's every, but everywhere I look, that's the title of it. Now, I think it's important to say that, yes, this was a cleansing in the Temple, but this was not the first Temple Cleansing. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but there was more than one temple cleansing in the Bible. There was actually two. There was two. The first one is recorded in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, he walks into Jerusalem, takes a whip, starts flipping over tables, like, you know, using a whip to send the money flying, and scatters everything out of there. And there he... he um, quotes from prophecy and says, zeal for my father's, house, my father's house will consume me. But in John chapter 2, we're at the beginning of his ministry. Here in Matthew 21, we're at the end of his ministry. And he comes in again and cleanses the temple one more time. So I bring this simply up to tell you that we can see the reforms that Jesus sought to make amongst the Jewish religious people clearly didn't stick. He made attempts to, to make reforms and to change their ways, but it didn't stick. Three years later, they were still in a similar uh, mindset towards, towards him and towards God. And despite his presence amongst them, his constant miracles, his signs, his teachings, it made no lasting impact as their hearts continued to be hardened towards him. But here's kind of a side lesson, something worth saying. We learn something about the character of God here. And that's his righteous anger towards sin and his unwillingness to let sin be present. He saw sin, he went in and dealt with it. After three years it still wasn't there. He was constantly working on the people for teaching and preaching, but before he died, he went in one more time to make a huge declaration. And here's the thing, he drove sin out. He was driving the sin out of the, of the temple. And this is super important because it gives us an understanding of his character towards us as well in terms of sin. It's something that he, he wants to drive out of us and to remove from our midst. And again, it's just probably just worth, thing, no, no, making, uh, worth making that note because we see his, his attitude towards sin and what he desires in godly people and his children. The question though is, what was going on that made Jesus so angry here? What was going on? The key is found in verse 13. He says, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. What's cool about this is he's actually quoting from two prophecies. He's quoting from two prophecies. First of all, he's quoting from Isaiah 56 in terms of the, um, in terms of the uh, uh, house of prayer and the robber's den is from Jeremiah 7. So this is the sermon outline. Jesus' rebuke. House of prayer, Isaiah 56, then of robbers, Jeremiah 7. And these are the places he's quoting from. So if you want to know what's going on, we have to go to those passages to understand the context there, to understand what he means by this. Because it makes no sense for Jesus to make a parallel and make those comments, make those prophetic claims, but not link what's going on in that present time with what was going on in the past. There's no point in using that prophecy if it's not related. So we're going to go back to Isaiah 56 to look at this. If you would like to, you can turn there in your Bible to Isaiah 56, if you want to read yours, but I also have it in the PowerPoint here, on, if you want to read along with me. So let's read this. This is what the Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial, and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be a servant. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in, the pres- in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. I create a key phrase there. Notice in this prophecy, the two groups of people singled out that were to be one day received and accepted and blessed in the temple. I've highlighted, I've highlighted first group in blue. He says, let no foreigner, let no foreigner be excluded. Number two, on the fourth line down, the eunuch. The two singled out people that are to be included in the temple for acceptance and blessing are the foreigner and the eunuch in the house of prayer. Okay? They're to be included according to Isaiah's prophecy. We don't see the significance of this until we remember what was written about the eunuch, for example, in the Law of Moses. Deuteronomy 3. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay? So, in those days, in Moses' days, and in the tabernacle, no one who was a eunuch would be allowed to come to the temple and worship. They weren't allowed inside the temple. They weren't allowed. Okay? Also foreigners weren't allowed either. Look at the dedication of the temple. This is Solomon's prayer about the foreigner. 
He's dedicated the temple to the Lord. It's, a, it's an incredible chapter, by the way. It's, it's a beautiful chapter. It's like, it's a long reading, but it's full of great insight. But he makes this declaration. Also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people, when he comes from a far country on account of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this house, then. Notice they're not praying in the house. They're praying towards the house. I phoned, I phoned Peter Fast, our Jewish expert, and said, am I understanding this right? He said, you got it right. They could come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, but they were never allowed inside the temple walls. So the foreigner and the eunuch excluded in the law. Isaiah, a prophecy about them welcome in the temple. A shift is taking place in Isaiah's prophecy in the future to come. These two groups are initially not allowed to be part of the interfaith community. Again, if you want to talk about why in the dialogue, I'm willing to do that. But here's, I don't want to get into it right now. But again, we see the shift occurring where these people are to be fully welcomed in the temple and part of God's people. But not just welcome church, in store for incredible blessings. Blessings. Listen to this blessing for the foreigner. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. When they came into the temple, they were to be absolutely overwhelmed with joy. It was to be an exuberant experience, a time of, of rejoicing and celebration. What an incredible blessing to have. You know, when you walk into Genesis' house, <laughs> We want this to be a time of joy and encouragement and blessing to you. This is what was to happen to the foreigner. They were to, being accepted into God's people and being within their walls was to be this incredible experience. But the eunuch, this is super cool. Look at the blessing in Isaiah 56 to the eunuch. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Church, what can't eunuchs have? Children. They can't pass down what? Their last name. I was faced with this issue as a dad. If Andrew Dexter didn't have boys, Dexters are done. We're done. The Lord probably was like, I'm going to prevent that from happening. Maybe it's because my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother prayed, I wasn't there to be a Dexter in the ministry. <laughs> no pressure, boys, but that's a, that's a, that was a prophetic message to your, your daddy. Here's the point. Like, I, ha I need the boys. The name. A eunuch can't have children. God's saying this. I know you can't have children. I'm going to give you a name better than any son and daughter. Why? Because you're related to me. When you receive my salvation, you're my son. You're my son. There's no name better than that. It's never going to be cut off. 
no pun intended, in that language, that is intentional language, never cut off. Awesome. Good job, Isaiah, led by the Holy Spirit to write those words. He's saying this, eunuch, I'm going to give you something better and greater than you lost. You see what the house of prayer is about now? What's a biblical house of prayer? When you look at the foreigner and the blessing, and you look at the eunuch and the blessing, it's about seeing broken and outcast people who once were excluded come to know the saving grace of God. There's inclusion to the broken, the once far off people, and they're welcome in the saving grace of God. But not just so they can receive forgiveness, church, but they, so they can receive healing, wholeness, restoration to a life better than they ever knew before. To give them a name better than sons and daughters. This is so cool, church. That's what a house of prayer is to be about. The way we pray with our words is to be thinking with the same way as this, with God's passion to the lost. The way we minister to people when they come in the doors. A house of prayer is more than just the words you say, church. It's sharing in God's passion to want to redeem and share the lost people. So when they come in here, you bring them into fullness of wholeness and restoration and healing. Whether it be spiritual, physical, whatever, that is God's passion for people. We want to share in that heartbeat for, them, for those people. And you know what's really amazing? <laughs> this, is where, this is the exciting part for me. This is why I couldn't wait to preach this sermon. I learned something new. I have studied the Bible for 15 years. And if you were to ask me this question just a little while ago, I would have answered it this way. He said, Andrew, who are the first people to get the gospel? I say the Jews. Who are the second? I say the Samaritans. Who are the third? The Gentiles. And then said, who were the first Gentile converts in the Bible that, we are, that is recorded by name? I'd say Cornelius in his house. You agree? I want you to read something with me. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. <clears throat> so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> A court official of the Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he came to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then Philip, and then so you know the scene, Philip shares the gospel with them and, and uh, opens his mouth and shares Jesus. And you know the rest of it. He says, what's preventing me from getting baptized? And they baptize him and he goes to Ethiopia and, what, and no doubt shared his experience coming to know the Lord in a real, real way. Listen, church. The first convert Gentile written recorded convert is an Ethiopian foreigner eunuch. Do you think God's words aren't performative? You think that's by coincidence? Reading Isaiah? 
I come in, this is awesome. Yeah. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely excuse me from his people. And let no unit complain, I'm only a dry tree. The Bible is a cool book. And that's an exciting story for me. It may not excite you the same way it does me, but man, I, I live as a pastor for moments like this in Scripture. I live for this. God bound himself to his word by showing us a glimpse of what this fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy looked like and what the characteristics of a true house of prayer are. Where excluded and broken people are welcomed within the embrace of God's saving grace, where regardless of their background, whether they're physically deformed or spiritually broken, they can have their life restored and to something better than they ever had before. That's why you can have a hundred people in a church gathered in a circle praying and not be a biblical house of prayer. Because it's more than just words church. It's about having this vision of God and his passion. And then when you're praying, those are the kinds of, like that's the heartbeat of your prayer life as well. Listen, he came to save us from sin so he could be in relationship with us. He came to, so he could partner with us. It's all relational. Well, the gospel is a relational thing. He's daddy. God's desperate for more family members. That's his heartbeat. He loves people. He loves life. He wants to have as many people in glory with him as possible. And we have a role to play in this. So this is what was supposed to happen. But that was not what was happening. Instead, Jesus says, you're making my house a robber's den. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 7, or I have it on my PowerPoint if you like, in verse 1. Before I get into reading it, I want to share something with you. Before I came to this text, here's what I thought was going on here. I had a couple different options, and a lot of the commentators or pastors you hear preach on this um, will come at this bent. And this is the kind of concepts that I, used, I was thinking this week as well. So number one could be something like this. Because he's flipping over tables and he's uh, uh, flipping over them, getting the money changers and scattering everything out everywhere, um, and the animals would have been going flying, and the birds and everything too. Um, because he was doing this, the issue was that the Gentiles, where the court of the Gentiles of prayer was happening, where the Gentiles were supposed to come to worship God, was getting clogged up. So basically it was an issue of space. And so the idea was, if you can remove everything out of there, it can be an open, barren space, because that space was about six football fields, I believe, it was massive. It'd be a, you'd open up the space so that everyone could come and pray. It'd be a piece of, place of quietness and tranquility and just like a very calm place. But I started thinking, uh, I don't think the temple was a really big quiet place at all. So again, I phoned Peter. I said, Peter, like, you're the Jewish expert here. Am I right or wrong that um, it would, this is not what's going on here? He goes, I don't think so either. And he, he goes, the temple grounds wasn't a quiet place. He goes, 
the trumpets would blast to announce the sacrifices. Remember, Jesus, his teaching ministry was often in the temple. Rabbis would be gathered with their flocks of people in corners, like teaching their people. Um, there'd be, uh, um, uh, like, you know, so teaching, there'd be a, a trumpet blast, there'd be singing, joyous singing in the temple courts. It wasn't a quiet place. So the issue is not removing, uh, clogging stuff up. Number two, I went and looked and I thought, where were they to buy sacrifices when the, as pilgrims came to the land? Where were they to buy sacrifices? They were to buy them at the temple. Deuteronomy 14, look it up. It actually tells you when you come to the temple, you are to take your money and buy oxen, sheep, etc. That's where you came to do it. So the issue isn't necessarily here that they're clogging up space. Another possible issue is, and this could very well could be part of it, I'm not denying this could be part of it at all, um, the issue that uh, they were robbing people. So when they would come to buy their sacrifices, if it was worth, like in God's eyes, say, uh, you know, one shekel for a sheep, they were charging four and extorting people. And that very well could be. I'm not denying that that wasn't happening. And we'd, we'd link that to the word robber. He's a, you're robbing people. So I've said a whole bunch of stuff. But Jeremiah 7, in context, opens our eyes up to what is more going on. And it's way bigger than this church. It's way bigger than this. Check this out. This is what the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord said. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and therefore proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. I missed one. That's too bad. Anyway, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe. We are safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you, but I have been watching, declares the Lord. Here's a question. Do you see anything in there about money? Or clogging up a, a space? Again, I'm not denying that things are going on that were crooked and in, in some of those categories. But you know what's interesting? Look at the definitions of what's going on here. These are people who are coming into the temple, living in complete disobedience to God on everywhere in life, coming into the temple and thinking, because I'm in God's presence and doing religious worship duties and performing what you know some of the things I'm supposed to do according to Moses' law, I'm good with God. <laughs> They're performing religious duties, thinking that the temple location is a safe place with God. That's what they think. There is one reference to money in here. Oh, actually, uh, you'll see it on the you'll see it on the fourth line down. Will you steal and murder? So yeah, I don't want to doubt that there could have been extorting the pilgrims as they're coming in. But isn't it interesting? They're breaking all ten commandments here, church. 
They've broken all Ten Commandments. They're not just committing crimes of fraudery with money. These are people who are the religious leadership of the church. Of the, they're the, the, the Sanhedrin control the temple. These are people that, that control the temple and they give the appearance of holiness because they're doing religious duties and because they're standing in the temple in God's presence, but they don't live according to God's ways. They're breaking all of His commandments. And here's the key. The, the key is this. They think they're safe doing it. We are safe. We are safe to do all these things. And then he links that. Are you telling me that you can do this in my house? You've made it a robber's den. Now that's important. What's a den, church? What's a den? Relax and hang out. Place of security. Place of comfort. A place of safety. <laughs> a lion goes there to feed their cubs, right? A fox goes in there to, to be protected from the predators out there and, to, and to, to sort of like be sheltered from the environment. Those of you who, I, this is kind of maybe old, more old school language, but uh, you say like your, your grandparents used to go to the den and maybe smoke their pipe and, and like read the newspaper. It's a place to hang out. It's a place to, that you love to be in. These, he calls these guys, he says, your place that you think is a place, you think your safe place to hang out is the temple. You think that's your safe place? I'm telling you, it's not. Can you picture the scene, church? Picture this scene. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Could you imagine? I say, Roger, I got a job for you today. What's that? You want me to do announcements? No. It's even better. What do you mean? I want you to stand at the front door of our path. And as everyone walks in, I want you to say this. We don't care if you're here to worship God. We don't care if you put your hands up. I don't care if you take notes in your Bible. I don't care if you, uh, you know, do any of these things. I don't care if you can sing in harmony. I don't care about your religious duty. Amend your ways. You'd be like, whoa, buddy. This is what he was doing. The prophet was there saying, repent, repent, repent of your deeds. It's an incredible scene. No wonder Jeremiah went through like a living hell in Israel in terms of the way he was treated. But this is what's going on, church. But the word robber is interesting too. The word robber is interesting too because here's the thing. We've already determined by this list. Where's the robbery? Stealing for sure. Notice all the Ten Commandments are defined. Breaking the Ten Commandments is the description of being a robber. Now what's really cool is this. The same word for robber in Matthew is used for the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross turned to Jesus and said this. After he realized that he was the Son of God, he said, you know what? Stop. He turned to his other robbing thief. There's two of them, right? He turned to the guy and said, Stop mocking him. We're dying for what we justly deserve. He's dying for something he didn't deserve. Who was the robber recognizing that he was receiving justice from? The Roman government. He had broken the law. He had gone against the emperor, the Caesar, like Pontius Pilate. He had rebelled against the sovereign. He'd broken the commandments and he says we're suffering justly 
And he's saying, you guys are robbers. Why? You are, you are breaking all of the commandments. You're going against the sovereign, the king, the Lord God. You're a robber because you, you just, you're, an, you're an insurrectionist against the sovereign king. This is powerful, church. They made the location and the religious practices more important than their character in life and a transformed life. Oh my goodness, isn't that the church in many ways and in many instances? God, Jesus wants to drive this out. Not incrementally get it out. He wants to drive this attitude out of the church. I want to finish the sermon with, uh, well, yeah, it'll be the second last point before I finish the sermon, with a song from Keith Green. Listen to the words of this song, church. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. Well, you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping of how it will be if you keep going on ignoring my words. Well, you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming to me at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming quickly to get back to you according to what you've done. Look what happened when Jesus removed what was unnecessary in an attempt to fulfill basically what Isaiah was speaking about and bring restoration to God's purposes. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He removed what was unnecessary and started doing what was necessary. And we know from the scriptures, all the healings, according to John, all the healings were not just to leave the person healed and walk away. They were signs. They were pointers to say, put your trust in me as God, as your Savior. The miracle was merely a revelation of who was standing in their midst and what that meant for their life. lessons. Biblical house of prayer, according to Jesus' words, using Isaiah and using Jeremiah, shares in God's passion to see the inclusion of broken and outcast people coming to the saving grace of God. Not only this, seeks to bring healing, wholeness, and restoration in each person's life better than they knew before. The eunuch and the foreigner. If we're going to partner with God, church, 
If you're going to take, the, if, we're, if we are going to take that sermon seriously from last week, we have to share in God's passion in these ways. Not just our words and prayer in these kind of categories, but also in the way we prioritize everything about our, 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 the heartbeat of our life. The question we all have to answer, including myself, is what, what's, it gonna, what's gonna have to change in my life currently in order to share in God's passion? What currently has to change in your life and my life in order to share in the same passion as God has for this vision of a house of prayer? I'll leave you with that to ponder with the Lord. Number two. Unless one is willing to walk in obedience to God, all other forms of worship are meaningless to him. <laughs> Honestly, that's Jeremiah. What are you, I'm standing at the gate saying, why are you coming to worship? You're breaking all the Ten Commandments. You don't care about God's way. You're walking in disobedience. It doesn't matter if you buy, if you, you know, buy the sacrifice from the guy at the table or you uh, sing appropriately in, the, you know, in harmony with the rest of the choir or you, you, know, you got the right candle in your pocket or whatever. It doesn't mean jack to me. It'll mean something if you love me as reflected by worship in the way you live your life and then do it. But not if there's a divorce of those two things. Ask the Lord this week if there's any areas of our lives that need to be changed. If he took us into a room one-on-one -on -one and closed the door and said, can we have a little talk? About what, Jesus? Just a few things. A few things that I'd love to see you change. <clears throat> what would those be? To obey is better than sacrifice. Here's the thing. The Lord loves you. He wants to partner with you. <laughs> He's redeemed you. But he wants to drive out things that are preventing the full partnership from taking place. And he wants you to share in God's passion and being a biblical house of prayer.